0: Hello, everyone, tuned in to the Neil Garfield Show today. This is Charles Marshall coming to you, as I usually do, from Southern California, and also glad to report that I have with me uh, Bill Padillo, and he's back today with us to discuss uh, California uh, lawsuits that involves a non-judicial foreclosure situation. It involves um, compelling aspects to discovery, and I do use that word in a playful way because it also involves a motion to compel as part of what we will be talking about today on the show. And as, uh, also, as always, uh, on this great Thursday of uh, September 19th, 2019. This show is brought to you uh, by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and com, And it is made possible specifically because of donations from listeners like you who tune in every week, every Thursday, we are here. Any amount you are able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. So the case uh, Bill and I are going to be discussing today is titled Beninfeld versus DiTech. That's the short case name. Now, there are additional plaintiffs, and there are additional defendants. One of the defendants is not necessarily our good friend, but uh, our well-known entity, uh, Bank of New York Mellon. Now, Bank of New York Mellon has been on the other side of a lot of my lawsuits over the years, and it has been and is continuing to be on the other side of a number of current lawsuits that are out there, including the one on which Bill Padalo is consulting as we speak. And Bill uh, we'll will be speaking to a number of aspects, to developments that absolutely can be described as positive and can very much be looked at as representations that Our side, the borrower said, decided trying to vindicate the rights, frankly, of everyone, of all of America, to see that the mortgage meltdown, biggest crime in history, as it has been styled by so many people and places, including Neil himself and and myself, that there really be uh, some kind of meaningful accounting for what's happened. And this one individual lawsuit is one progressive step toward that accounting. In and of itself, it's just a blip on the screen. However, there's a lot in here that could potentially be used in other cases. And it is a sign that even here, in the latter stages of 2019, there are in California and there are elsewhere uh, of plaintiff's actions making traction, making headway, forcing the other side, to a far corner where they really are looking at very difficult litigation ahead. And the admissions that are being exposed through the discovery in this case are, again, uh, quite troubling and profound. So, i why don't you go ahead and break down the case for us and what you've seen uh, through your own role in the case Providing your private investigating and forensic uh, analysis that you so ably do in these cases.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to, and uh, thanks uh, for having me on as usual. I enjoy it. Um, Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I brought this case uh, to the attention of both you and uh, Neil and kind of going over some potential topics for the show because I think it fits really well in line with some of Neil's recent posts about how to gain traction and have success in uh, defending or litigating or prosecuting these cases. And so much of it uh, depends on um, very good uh, prosecution in the form of discovery and staying on top of that, keeping your pedal foot to the the, the pedal, I should say, uh, from the very beginning and applying the pressure in a uh, procedural way that uh, has to be it's it 's that process that Neil talks about where you you know you have to do your discovery demands and then when they try to uh, you know stonewall those efforts, you have to then take the next logical step, which is to compel and explain to the court where the gaps and the deficiencies are in their story and what is needed to help complete the investigation. Uh, to really dot the i's and cross the t's, and, and to uh, force them to meet their burden, so to speak, of, of proving their case so, uh, that they're the party entitled to enforce the debt. And this is a particular case that you know I've been involved in. But uh, you know, kudos uh, to uh, the attorney and his paralegal on this, Ron, freshman out of San Diego, um, who I work a number of cases with, and. Is uh, excellent paralegal uh, Kimberly Cromwell, who's uh, my understanding is she's uh, going to be taking the bar or soon to pass the bar and become an attorney herself. So a lot of kudos go to uh, uh, counsel here for for doing an outstanding job of, of of prosecuting and pushing these issues before the court. And again, it also takes a client too that's willing to. Uh, you know, fund this type of a uh, uh, operation too. So uh, it takes a, it takes a great team effort. But w- this particular case, uh, we got a preliminary order. You know, coming after asking for a lot of the basic essential elements uh, and documents to the case. That is pretty much typical what we seek in. Uh, or at least I do in not just this case or with other attorneys across the country. It's, it's the fundamental documents to support their position that we uh, are seeking and, and have a right to know and, and uh, that they typically stonewall. So here the court, and I'm just going to read a, a paragraph out of this uh, preliminary order here. It says, <clears throat> the court granted a continuance to allow specified additional discovery and the court finds that a party seeking summary judgment unreasonably failed to allow discovery to be conducted such that plaintiffs have been deprived of responsive written discovery on, among other things, the issues of chain of title with respect to the subject loan, the transfer, sale, and purchase of the loan, the relationship between the trust beneficiary and its agents, loan servicers, and any instructions by the beneficiary on which those parties were acting, the fundamental facts supporting the declarations relied upon in support of the motion, and the status of the monies actually owed under the subject loan the court finds such information to have been essential for plaintiffs to address adequately and thereby have a fair opportunity to defeat the motion. So this is uh, on the heels of a summary uh, judgment motion filed uh, by the parties. And and this also, uh, this case includes a countrywide trust, uh, the Seawalt 2005-60T1. So, In the COMPEL uh, order, and and they were forced to produce uh, these documents, um, some of which are still, I believe, we're waiting on. Uh, But what was interesting is uh, uh, we did receive, and it's kind of the first time that I've personally viewed after all these years, uh, what's called a trustee certification that um, is usually attached as an example to most pooling and servicing agreements. So when you read, typically sections uh, 2.2 is what they tend to fall under with a countrywide trust. It's the acknowledgement by the trustees where they say uh, that on or near the closing of the trust, there's going to be a number of initial certifications uh, that the, the trustee re, uh, reviewed the collateral files and certifies that it it did receive the original notes endorsed with all the intervening endorsements, along with the assignments to the trust and so on and so forth. So uh, I've pointed out repeatedly over the years that one of the key elements missing when trying to determine... The custody of the original note, so to speak, and that the trust actually received it is I need to see uh, one of these executed certifications as they say were submitted uh, in conjunction with the PSAs. Well, they never produced those ever, and they dug their heels in on producing the ones in this particular case, but now, having looked at it, they did finally produce. And, you know, it, it's saying in there that Bank of New York, who was the trustee at the time of this particular trust it's certifying that uh, it did receive the original notes uh, endorsed in blank with all the intervening endorsements now i I think it's kind of uh ironic that in light of all the evidence that we've had over the years with these countrywide trusts, and it starts with the infamous KEMFI countrywide case out of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, and a lot of testimony from the countrywide employees, such as Linda DiMartini, which is well-publicized. A lot of their endorsers, like Michelle Showlander, whose name appears um, on this particular certification as a party who was notified with the de- <laughs> with the depositor. She, Her name is there associated with the depositor um but the if you read for example Showlander's, uh deposition testimony or DeMartinis the notes never left countrywide's possession they stayed and remained in in uh, semi valley california um the processes were that the endorsements were not placed on the notes uh until there was a default and they were needed for litigation purposes um, but that, what's even more telling when you read the Showlander depositions and 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 going about the custody of these things, is she's admitting in there uh, that uh, the notes went to the custodian, which was Recon Trust. Recon Trust was acting as a separate custodian for the Countrywide Financial. Uh, loans and that they never went to Bank of New York as trustee. So there's all these conflicting uh, testimony and all that sort of thing. But I think uh, it's going to get really interesting. And one of the points I want to make is that everyone out there knows and has been listening to the show or been following Neil's blog or any of this uh, over the years. Clearly is aware that there's been multi-billions of dollars of lawsuits from by the investors against these countrywide trusts. And at the heart of those investor lawsuits is the allegation that the trustees, you know, did not, uh, they breached their duties, they didn't, uh, they certified that they received the, the loan documents when in fact they didn't and uh that's at the heart of the investor lawsuits and so what's real surprising is now we've we've forced a compel issue here where in my view they're kind of stuck if if they don't produce the certification that the trust received the notes then it's pretty clear evidence that the trust never had the note never possessed it and as adam leventon and his securitization failed argument uh, at, out to the court, that means they lack standing to foreclose if they never received the assets underlying the trust. So they're kind of forced to have to produce that. But on the flip side of it, they're producing a document that is clearly contradictory to uh, all the testimony that the countrywide employees have been giving that kind of shows that it's very likely that they're still advancing a document that they likely know to be false.
0: Uh, I mean, that's really good analysis. Uh, I mean, the thing that's striking about, well, the particular certifications that were provided here, I mean, there's an initial one provided October 28, 2005. And just as a quick aside, again, this is case is, is frankly evidence that these cases particularly in California can still go forward. I mean, here we are. 14, 15 years later, the defendants, you know, in these cases won't be happy about this, but that there hasn't been a true reckoning yet to all the mortgage meltdown mess and all the crime and fraud associated with it that have taken place doesn't mean that there should never be a reckoning or that, you know, it's frankly just too late to litigate this. Uh, It's not. Uh, statute of limitations issues will often come up. As a reminder, when you're pleading this case, uh, this type of case, to which, you know, my usual disclaimer I'm not giving legal advice, I'm not acting as an attorney on this show. I'm simply a conduit for some often refreshing and, and frankly uh, appreciated from, from my point of view, Bill's point of view. Neil and many out there uh, across the Fruited Plain to the effect that, yes, we can hold the other side to account sometimes. Uh, Granted, we'd like to see more of those times. Granted, we'd like to see more brought to bear uh, so that the other side really has to meaningfully write what they've wronged. Nevertheless, you do what you can, and this arena has in any other. Uh, so, these certifications here, uh, and by the way, my point, you know, as an aside was to say that quite title, there is never statute of limitations issued. That can be planned at any time. Of course, the bona fides have to be there, and they are in this case. So, certification of trustee, it starts with an initial one here, October 28, 2005. It's essentially the purported Trustee Bank of New York Mellon representing legally. Yes, the bona fides related to such and such uh, specific promissory notes, i.e., loads are in the specific pooling and servicing agreement. Now, the interesting thing is, then they come out with a delayed delivery certification, November 28, thousand five. Uncoincidentally, thirty days later. And that reports to show that, well, for those specific loans uh, that weren't provided previously, there's a delay certification, as they call it, delay delivery, uh, initial mortgage loan certification. I mean, talk about legalese. uh, You would think in the real world, even the legal world, you either provided something or you didn't. If you're going to certify something, real world, legal world, okay, well, that means you're standing behind that X is X, Y is Y, and how things have been described or represented are really there. Instead, you have this, you know, sort of weasel uh, language and this made-up legal concept of delayed delivery certification. (laughs) And then uh, literally two months after that, in january 20 on january 28 2006 then there's a final uh purported uh certification uh by the trustee as it says certification of trustee final your certification of trustee regarding the loans in the supposed fully in service agreement i mean talking about legal theater or street theater Kind of masquerading as legal theater. Here we have it. And uh, I think one of the other aspects to this that's important to discuss, uh, Bill, the motion for summary judgment, I mean, have plaintiffs, it doesn't sound like plaintiffs have put one forward and in fact they're looking for meaningful discovery to shore up their own defense to the one put forward by defendants, but where, where does that stand in this case? Because it is important procedural element with important substantive implications. What's the M S J legal posture here?
2: Honestly, I don't I don't know if I can answer that question probably correctly. Well, I, I know that,
0: that. Uh, Is there only a, it's N S J pending or plaintiffs it doesn't sound like plaintiffs have done their own N S J yet.
2: Yeah, I think right now it's uh it's still in um uh, there's depositions that are being scheduled, and there's a trial date scheduled and there's a lot of things that are still um, moving uh, about and is my understanding as of the moment but um I think what's when you what, just coming back a step here when you're when you're talking about this uh certification here they're clearly spelling out here that Bank of New York. Uh, has is certifying that it has received these documents and what's interesting is that when you look at most of these countrywide uh, trust you know, SEC filing documents they don't identify the, the vast majority of them anyway they don't identify who the custodian is um, of, of the notes. So you, it kind of implies by the certification that it's Bank of New York because they are certifying that they received these documents. However, you get into the fine bell, print bowels of the, of the prospectus and that, and it talks about uh, the trustee being allowed to um, appoint a custodian on its own and that uh it can it can go out and seek someone else to execute these things on their behalf as agent and so on and so forth and and what you're what I'm seeing more and more when you start to get these documents produced is it creates a whole another series of doors that open up uh in reference to underlying missing more and more missing documents that are required such as custodial agreements for one okay so where's the custodial agreement um, between you know any party who is going to hold the loans uh, for this particular trust and going back to that uh Michelle Schonlander deposition and it's amazing how how many times you know you read this stuff and you touch it over the years and and even <laughs> you keep seeing new things that keep popping out at you but she's very clear in her uh deposition testimony that not only did she never apply any endorsements on on the notes herself and that they were unknown surrogates uh, who were allowed to stamp her uh, endorsement on the notes, but those the authority that these uh, surrogates had, according to Showlander, were given by her own power of attorney that was on file, and Bank of America, after the series of mergers and successors uh, successions in the corporate uh, takeover of Countrywide, She's admitting that even Bank of America, once it became Bank of America, that they were continuing to endorse with her countrywide stamps. so you have now you know all kinds of different levels as to not only the authenticity of these documents and when the endorsements were were applied and by whom, which no one ever knows on the surface, but these documents are being executed by surrogates as attorney in fact with no reference to any attorney of fact and no reference to any power of attorney whatsoever, giving them the, that authority. And, and, you know, we see documents all the time that will say power of attorney without the references to where to find it or where it's recorded or anything. But I'm starting to now see that most of these documents are being executed Uh, by admitted power of attorney authority, and there's no evidence or scintilla of of that authority of of those documents without any disclosure of that fact, I guess I should say.
0: Right. I mean, you still see a lot of cases, California and elsewhere, where power of attorney assignments are a big missing link in the case. They appear to have been... uh, you know, essentially finessed, in many cases the purported entity agent empowered by the power of attorney has been suspended or for other reasons is not legally able at the time the power of attorney was assigned to even be operating, or you have an assignment based on the power of attorney literally years later, sometimes 10 or 15, when there are intervening assignments which themselves show for various legal reasons that the assignment isn't valid. And yet, uh, to many courts continue to treat those types of illegalities and deficiencies as, as to the assignments themselves. Oh, then those assignments are merely voidable, not void. That's still kind of the magic standard that we're stuck with I think it will continue to be, it's very much set of law in California now, and I think throughout much of the country, judicial or non-judicial foreclosure cases reflecting that fact, so that unless you can show the underlying assignments are void, then there's a problem. Uh, of course, in this case, this case is moving in a direction where, indeed, there might be the ability to show that the underlying assignment are width. And there appears to be a judge in this case who at least, uh, let's say, superficially one has the impression would consider uh, that type of uh, analysis. So just to to, to give a little bit more uh, backdrop and feedback on this whole motion to summary judgment issue and how it plays into all this, I mean, the reason it's important is because you can see what happened procedurally in this case. You can see that discovery was promulgated by plaintiffs on the institutional defendants, in this case, specific uh, to this discussion we're having now. We're talking about the discovery promulgated on Bank of New York Mellon. A couple of other interesting wrinkles to this case. Yes, Ditech is the name defendant. Bank of New York Mellon is another defendant. Now, many listeners will know that DICAC is currently uh, in in Chapter 11 bankruptcy in New York. Generally speaking, they will have the benefit of the automatic stay as to this particular lawsuit or other lawsuits in which they are named defendant proceeding uh, as as an automatic stay matter one would need to go into the Chapter 11 court and seek specific permission to continue to litigate against DITEC in this case. So practically and legally speaking, it's likely here that litigation is stayed as DITEC. Of course, that has no impact, or should it, on the ability to litigate against Bank of New York Mellon, hence the discovery on them. And uh, the judge is absolutely right here to continue the motion for summary judgment proceedings, and it may even end up it may end up affecting the trial calendar. Uh, that I'm sure will will come out later, and maybe Bill can fill us in again on that in a future show. But right now, it's important for for listeners to realize that yes, sometimes sometimes you can come back when you're getting these. These semi-worthless or worthless responses from institutional defendants and you still can get uh, the ability to get meaningful documents, meaningful information, meaningful admissions, and then introduce those into evidence in your opposition to motions for summary judgment. So that's all the time we have for today, Bill. Appreciate your being here as always. And Neil will be back next week.
2: All right. Thanks, Charles.
1: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host, and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.
2: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office.